Right on. Well, hey, welcome. I'm glad to be here with you guys. My name's Kevin. I'm one of the pastor elders in Camarillo, and it's always a joy to be with you guys. Uh, I want to just, obviously, we've been talking about Celebrate Generosity a bunch, and uh, maybe as the first church plant out of Thousand Oaks, I know what it's like to be like, really, do I have to go travel up to Thousand Oaks to be a part of something? Sometimes you can feel like the little brother or the little cousin or somebody who maybe you don't feel like, oh, those are really my people. But the reality is, whether or not you know it or not, you're part of an amazing family uh, or part of a family of churches, and it's a beautiful thing. And we've been hounding our folks at Camarillo, which obviously is, you know, a whole 15 minute closer than you guys are to Thousand Oaks to make sure to make it a point to be up there on October 14th. And I just really want to press into you guys. I really, really can't stress enough. Be present. You will miss out. Not only will you miss out, the rest of the family of churches will miss out because you belong and you're incredibly important. So come celebrate with us. Celebrate our incredible King Jesus. This whole celebrate generosity thing, this thing only makes sense because Jesus has generously poured out his love upon us because God himself is generous with us. This morning, we're going to jump right in. We're going to be talking about local generosity this morning, and uh, we're actually not going to be talking about money a whole lot. As I was getting ready for this message, I came across and was reminded of some of the simplicity of Scripture. I was reminded of the great commandments to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and, which is the greatest commandment, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. This morning, as we talk about local generosity, we're going to find that at the core of local generosity is really that second commandment, the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so as we look at what it looks like to be generous locally, I want us to go to Luke chapter 10, and we're going to be doing verses 25 through 37. What I just quoted to you was from Matthew 22, but we also see the greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment listed off in Luke 10 within the context of the story of the Good Samaritan. And so for us, as we engage with Scripture this morning, uh, one, I want us to be open to what the Lord has to teach us. There should be very little. This, there might be some that's brand new, but by and large, there's not going to be a whole lot, I think, where you're going to be like, whoa! But I think the reality is for the majority of us when it comes to loving our neighbor as ourself. It's something that we know, but there's a disconnect between how we actually live. So I really want to press into that this morning because I think if Jesus says the whole law is summed up in these two parts in Matthew 22, maybe it's something that we ought to take seriously. So with that, let's pray. Father, we ask that you would teach us this morning. Holy Spirit, I invite you to speak through me. And Lord, we recognize even now in our coming in and, and where we're at this morning, there's a good chance that there is some disconnects in our lives and in our hearts. And uh, some of us might be really uneasy. Some of us might be really tired. But wherever we're at this morning, we just want to come before you. We want to present ourselves to you. We want to be with you, the good shepherd. So would you lead us this morning? And I pray for each and every one of us that 
we wouldn't just listen today, but that there would be pieces of your word that we begin to put into practice. That we'd be like the wise man who hears your word and puts it into practice. Lord, we need your help today. We ask for lots and lots of grace. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Luke 10, 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, he's speaking to Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? Have you guys noticed that Jesus oftentimes doesn't just give people the answer right away? He like, hey, what do you think? Good things to put into practice. Well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Sometimes the Pharisees and the lawyers, I feel like they really need to learn when to like shut their mouth a little bit and just like stop, but they go on. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? I, if I were Jesus, I feel like this would be a very annoying question. Um, and Jesus replied, once again, not just with a direct answer, with a story. And a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among the robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him aside on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who has showed him mercy, or the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. We start our time in this text today to try and simplify what we're talking about when it comes to local generosity. Local generosity is at the core of the second greatest commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. When it comes to loving your neighbor, you cannot love them and exclude generosity. Generosity is a tangible expression of love. And it's not just money, it's much, much more. In this story, Jesus clearly tells the Pharisees and lawyers what those who have eternal life will look like. They will love God with all that they have. That this vertical relationship between them and God will be a real, a genuine thing that involves, yes, their words. It also will involve their hearts. It will involve their physical strength. It will involve their will, their thought, their emotion. But the relationship will not stop there. If it does, there's something broken in that relationship. Because that love, that relationship that is going vertical between God and man is one that is made to be spread horizontally. Where we're called to love our neighbor as ourselves. 
Now, the lawyers and the Pharisees, they try and justify themselves. I love that that's in there in the text, that they're trying to justify themselves. Really, what they're trying to do is they're trying to find a reason to stay comfortable in their way of living. When it comes to their neighbor, what they really want to do is, my neighbor are the people who believe like me, think like me, and attend the same synagogue as me. That's my neighbor, and I'm okay loving that person. So the Pharisees are trying to come up and justify themselves in a way in which they can stay and remain comfortable in their pattern of life. And this is where Jesus, rather than simply telling them the answer, he tells them a story. Some actually believe this isn't a parable, that this is actually a well-known story in the area, but this is the story of the Good Samaritan. And it's quite fascinating. There's a number of people who come by, and we're going to walk through each one. See, first, a priest who by chance, I love that, who by chance comes by, and if you're listening to the story, a friend of ours taught through this, and he said he was reading the story to his son, and his son was like, isn't the priest supposed to be the good guy? If you're listening to this, you'd be thinking, oh, goodness, a good guy is coming. And that's what you'd think. But as he walked by, he made sure not just to, like, come by and check and see if he was okay, but to cross, actually, the other side of the road to get as far away from this man as possible. Next, a Levite. One, again, who comes from the priestly order. If you're a listener and who Jesus is speaking to is he's speaking to a crowd full of Jews, a crowd full of religious leaders. And if you heard that a Levite was coming next, you'd be like, yes, okay, fine, whatever. Something must have been wrong with that priest, but at least the Levite's coming next. He's going to come by. He's going to help. He's going to do the right thing. He should have been the one to stop. But does he stop? No. He keeps moving. And like the priest ahead of him, he leaves the man alone. Now, bring maybe a little bit of context to these men who are pious and uh, uh, they're religious leaders of their time. They, they are trying to make sure to not become unclean in this process. So they had a tendency to add a handful of things to their traditions, and being around bloodied people is not something that is a clean thing, and so they are trying their best to stay unclean. And so they don't. However, they're clearly missing scripture in Leviticus 19.18 where the Jews are instructed clearly by Yahweh to love your neighbor as yourself. This idea of loving your neighbor as yourself is not a new concept. This is one that has been in existence from the beginning. These first two religious leaders are totally missing God's heart. And the final character that comes upon the scene is, is a Samaritan. Now, Samaritans are sworn enemies of Jews. The context in which Jesus is speaking in is, is of a Jewish crowd, one where people actually, when they hear that the next character is a Samaritan, like I almost think we should almost hear like a boo, because the relationship between Jews and Samaritans was so awful. There had been a grudge that had been going on for over a hundred years and the Jews are angry with the Samaritans for a number of reasons, but the chief one it comes back to is for them intermarrying with Assyrians hundreds of years ago during captivity, and they now view them as less than or half-breeds. They have some theological disagreements that are important as well, but we don't have time to dig in that today. So here comes a Samaritan, the least likely of the heroes that have been presented so far. And he comes along, and he's filled with compassion. 
This reminds me of Matthew 9 where Jesus is looking out upon the crowds and he says that he's filled with compassion for they're like sheep without a shepherd, harassed. And here this man, filled with compassion, comes and helps the man. He doesn't just give him a couple bucks and send him on his way. He actually grabs him and he puts him on his own animal. And on this journey that they're going to, this isn't, like a, this isn't like a short jaunt. We're not talking like a mile. This road that they're traveling along is one of the most dangerous highways that exists in that time. And this man actually risks his own neck. He goes to him. He bandages him up. I love pouring oil and wine. I don't know what pouring oil and wine does. I'm not a nurse, or, but I think it's, it's a good try. He's trying to heal him up, put, cover his wounds, uh, and he's trying to make him better. He's doing something. I don't think this guy's a trained professional is what I'm trying to highlight. This guy doesn't have like a tourniquet in his back pocket. But he goes down filled with compassion. What can I do? Here's oil. <laughs> Here's wine. I've got an Let me put you on the back of this animal. And they start walking. Again, nobody's got a car. All types of travel are slow. And then he goes to an inn and he pulls out two denarii. And he takes out these two denarii and he gives them to the innkeeper and he says, here, take care of the man. And if there are any other expenses, I'll come back and I'll take care of it. After telling this story, Jesus asked him, which one of these men proved to be his neighbor? And the man answers, the one who showed him mercy. You can almost sense the shame and defeat in the lawyer's answer. One of the things that's interesting to me is that the lawyer can't even say the Samaritan. There's such disdain. There's such hate for these people. That here this lawyer and those around are caught in their shameful pride, in their shameful arrogance, in their shameful position and here's this Samaritan who they see less than, who Jesus is honoring, saying, this man has followed the second greatest commandment. So why the heck are we talking about the Good Samaritan in a local generosity message? I think the reality is we have such a tendency to overcomplicate things. You guys ever notice that? We overcomplicate things all the time. Maybe it's just me, but I have a tendency to overthink things. I have a thing, t tendency to over-rationalize things. I remember I used to walk and pray with a guy named John Marshall for about seven years on Tuesday mornings. John Marshall and I would, would pray over each other. We'd pray, be, pray for one another. We'd be filled with the Spirit. We'd pray for our ministries together. Uh, we'd pray over our marriages, over the city of Camarillo. It was a beautiful time. But we would almost always, when we would get together, we'd have some sort of conversation about discipleship. We'd have some sort of conversation about how do we make disciples? How do we do this? We know that God's called us to make disciples. And we talk about it all the time. And finally, John told me, he said, look, Kevin, I will not have another conversation with you about discipleship until you actually start meeting with people. Because the reality was I started overcomplicating discipleship so much, thinking like, okay, which program should I use? And how often should we meet? And who should it be? And what should I do? And all of a sudden, I made things so complicated that I found myself actually doing nothing 
except for feeling more and more guilty because I actually wasn't engaging in discipleship. We overcomplicate things. And we've got Jesus who simplifies things like crazy. As he says, this is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And we do with the Pharisees, well, who is my neighbor? I mean, like, what does it look like to love my neighbor? I mean, like, is it like buying them coffee? Do I actually have to have them over? I mean, what should I do? I don't, I don't know exactly how to do this. And then if we're to be honest, most of us would, if we were to look in the mirror, if we were to ask God and listen faithfully, say, God, how are we doing at loving our neighbor? I think many of us would be surprised at how poor we're doing. And I don't think it's because any of us think that we shouldn't love our neighbor. I think there's other issues that come up. Talk about that in a second. What I want us to see is that local generosity and loving our neighbor is inseparable. That in our invitation to engage with local generosity is our invitation to join Jesus in his mission to love our neighbor, to put God on display in our community. What Jesus is highlighting here when the question of who is my neighbor, it's legitimately the people that you brush alongside your way. They're the people who you come in contact with day in and day out. They're your na- like your actual neighbor. I know this is where we overcomplicate things the most. It's like, who is it? Like, where do you live? Like, left, right, front, them, go. But they're also the person I sit next to at work. They're the receptionists. They're the people who come in and I engage with. They're the people I, I talk to on the phone. They're the people that I grocery shop with. What Jesus is doing in the Good Samaritan story is he is expanding this idea and concept that your neighbor isn't even just the people who look like you, smell like you, believe like you. It's far beyond that. But do we believe that these are people that God has called us to love? And do we believe that it's also the second greatest commandment? Is this really, like, is the whole law, is the, is the whole law really summed up in loving God with all that I have and loving, and loving my neighbor as myself? And I think many of us go, like, sure, like, absolutely, we've got to love God, but when it comes to this loving neighbor thing, it just becomes awfully ambiguous, and I think it just kind of flutters away. I want to look for a second at what it cost the Samaritan to help. Because I think one of the areas, too, that is hindering us potentially from engaging with our neighbors is that we don't realize, uh, I think we just want it to be, like, super easy. But when it comes to loving someone, it comes at a cost. For the Samaritan to help, it actually cost quite a lot. So it cost him at least two denarii, which is equivalent to two salary days. So two days worth of wages it cost this guy, bare minimum. It cost him at least a day and a half worth of time. That's a, I don't know when the last time you had a day and a half worth of time to give. What we don't understand is that this also cost his family greatly. 
You don't just travel this dangerous road for no reason. You travel this road because you're bringing goods back home or to, so you're either taking them to market or you're bringing goods back home to your family. And there's no refrigeration. If he's bringing stuff back home, he's potentially also costing his family maybe a day's worth of food. What it cost this man to love his neighbor, it wasn't just something that affected him. It actually infected or affected his whole family. It had an impact on them. Nevertheless, this man was moved by compassion, which if we connect it with the rest of the story, is directly connected to his love for God. And he acted upon it. Do we realize that loving your neighbor is something God has called you and me to do? And what is actually getting in the way of that? I want you to think about that for a second. I don't think there's many of us in the room who are like, whoa, I've never heard that before. I've never heard that I should love my neighbor. But if we're honest, how many of us are actually loving our neighbors? How many of us know our neighbor's name? How many of us have had our neighbors over for dinner? How many of us has been to a neighbor's birthday party? How many of us are taking our coworkers out to work? And I just want to be really clear. None of this is shame or guilt-induced. I'm, I'm saying I think this is a, a problem that exists within our culture. Maybe I'm wrong. You can tell me that. But I think we really struggle with the practical side of loving our neighbor. So I'd love to actually get some feedback from you guys right now. This is, this is group share time. I want to I wanna hear what, what are things that are legitimately getting in the way of us loving our neighbor? Time? What else? Yeah, absolutely. Especially if you've lived in the same house for a while and you haven't been engaging in this practice. Like that first, like, like I don't want to be rejected. It's like the little like middle schooler comes out in me and it's like, I... I don't want to ask her out. Like, what if she says no? You know? And, and there's this side of, like, a fear of rejection. What else? Selfishness. Selfishness. Absolutely. What else? Sarah? I think the fear of getting involved with other people's messes. For sure. <laughs> Right? If you're in a community group here, which I hope, if you're not, I hope you are, you'll realize quickly that we're all a big giant mess in one degree or another. And praise God that he loves us so much to enter into that mess, but also praise God that he doesn't leave us there, that he loves us so much that he's going to draw us out. But are we willing to jump into somebody else's mess? That's kind of terrifying. What else? Peggy? Um, sure. Yeah, so some, sometimes we have actually a really poor view of ourselves. We don't view ourselves like God views us, and so it's really hard. When it comes to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, we don't, we don't know how to do that. It's good. Anybody else? Ryan. I think there is not an easy out. They're always going to live right next to you. Mm-hmm. Sure. Oh, Yeah. Yeah. And some of you guys may not have homes. Maybe you live in an apartment. Guess what? If you live in an apartment, you still have neighbors. You have many more neighbors, actually. Uh, 
Sure. So it's not always. It's like they don't. Yes. Have. Yeah. So our our neighbors or the culture that we live in often it's a very private one, and so sometimes it's hard to break through that barrier. Absolutely. I think one of the ones that comes up to me is uh, there's kind of like this obsession of me time. Kind of goes back to the selfishness side of things of, of hey, I, I only have so much time and like I, I need to make sure I get my time in and if I don't, like I'm just going to be a jerk to the entire world so I can't love my neighbor right now. I think another one that's huge is actually our lack of that vertical relationship with God. That I think many of us struggle with an intimacy with Yahweh. Because that intimacy with Yahweh is never made to stop. From the beginning, you have been blessed to be a blessing. From you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. From you, all of Ventura will be blessed. Because of the relationship that you have with Yahweh, because of the relationship that's made possible with Jesus, because you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And in the core of your being, it still blows your mind that God could know someone like you. The good parts, the bad parts, the ugly parts, the shameful parts. And he can say, I know you, I love you, and I have forgiven you. And that wrecks you on a regular basis. And when you experience love like that, it has to move outward. Another thing that often gets in the way is our families. This is one of the reasons why Paul says, hey, if you can be single, be single. If you can be single, be single for the kingdom of God. Now, our families can also be part of that. And sometimes we use our, our families as excuses as why not to do something. But there are lots of things that get in the way of loving our neighbor. And thankfully, God has given us insight into how we can live and structure our lives in such a way where we can actually love our neighbor. You see, as God created the law in order for his people, he gave insight into his character. And along the way, it wasn't simply that Israel needed to do everything that God said. It was that Israel was supposed to represent the image of God. And so in Exodus 19, 5 through 6, it says this, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Yahweh wanted his presence to be known and experienced. And he used Israel to bring a glimpse of that into a dark and fallen world. And one of the ways that God revealed himself was through this concept of gleaning. The ancient Near East was a highly agricultural society, and each of the nations of this culture grew their food and raised the flocks to help their society survive. And Israel was one of those agricultural societies. So generosity in the context of Israel back in the day was going to reflect the nature of that society. And so God tells Israel in excuse me, Leviticus 23, 22, he says this, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner, for I am the Lord your God. You see, God calls on his landowners of Israel to intentionally leave the edges 
or their orchards or the fields as free access for the poor and the sojourner. And the poor in this context of Israel are people who don't have land or work, widows, orphans, those with physical or mental disabilities. And the sojourner in this context is the foreigner who's traveling through. And Israel was to be known by their generosity of margin. Always operate with your fields, with the edges in mind, being devoted to generosity because I am the Lord your God. And I want us to see that here. There are all, there, there were, they were to always, 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 always operate with their fields and edges in mind being devoted to generosity. Why? Because our God is generous. It's part of his character. And we are to show this world what he's like. He's asking them to live with margin. You guys live here in Ventura. I'm in Camarillo. We've got a little bit more ag than you guys do, but not a whole lot. Actually, you guys have quite a bit over here. It just gets confusing. When does Ventura stop and Oxnard begin? And, but I don't think anybody here actually has like a field, uh, a literal one. You're not harvesting grain or strawberries. And, but this concept of margin and this concept of gleaning can easily be applied to our lives. What does it look like for the field of your life to not consume everything, but to actually leave margin financially, emotionally, physically, spiritually, so that we can have margin to show this world what God is like? We live in Southern California. It's expensive. <laughs> Peggy just laughs. Yes, it's expensive. When it talks about financial margin, some of you are like us for years where we're living paycheck to paycheck, and it's like, what margin? I don't have a whole lot to give. And this picture of margin and this picture of gleaning, it has not just to do with your finances, even though I do believe that this is God's push on us to always live below our means. Always live below our means. This world will train us and teach us, spend everything you can. It's your right. But what does it look like to be disciplined? These owners of the field, these crops, they were their livelihood. You guys have read Ruth, or if you haven't, please go read Ruth. It is a beautiful story. This is all about God providing in amazing ways. We get this beautiful picture between Boaz and Ruth. Boaz is the redeemer, and Ruth really represents us. And we see this beautiful picture as Ruth and Naomi, and they come back. They got nothing. They got nothing. And they come to Boaz's field. And Boaz is being a faithful Israelite a faithful follower of Yahweh and making sure that there are extras left over for the poor, the sojourner. And Ruth, she comes to this field and she begins to glean from the fields of Boaz. And she catches Boaz's eye. And then Boaz says, hey, don't go into another field. Stay here. Stay here. It's not safe elsewhere. Glean here. Glean here. And this beautiful story goes on and Ruth ends up becoming, she gets redeemed by Boaz and is brought into this family. And then if you know the story, Jesus actually ends up coming from this line. It's like this beautiful, I love this story, but I love the picture of the gleaning and margin and what happens when we do it. When we live with margin, 
We provide places for redemption, healing, restoration to come. And when we live without margin, we just live like slaves to this world. And we don't have to. We don't have to, even in expensive Southern California. We don't have to. But we have to learn how to live with margin. Every one of us like, yes. I talked in Camarillo last week about global generosity. One of the things, like nobody ever says like, hey, you know what I want to be known for? Not being generous. Like nobody ever says like, that's my hope in life. I want to be the not generous one. But what we don't have is we don't have a whole lot of people who actually plan for generosity. And the problem is, especially in Southern California, if we don't plan for generosity, if we don't plan for margin, guess what? We're going to continue to say, I wish I was generous. I wish I had margin. I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish. And all of a sudden, we're going to become this discontent, bitter person who's like, ugh, it's just so expensive to be in California. I'm moving. And the reality is God has placed you here and now for such a time as this. What does it look like to be a shining outpost? What does it look like to be like a shining outpost in Ventura? Where you don't let the cares and pleasures of this world dictate how you live your life, but you let Yahweh and his two greatest commandments be the pillars of not just your belief, not just your theology, but the pillars of your practice. We've got to learn margin. Titus 3.14 says this, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. That's this process of let us grow in understanding how to do that so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. In devoting themselves to good works, one of the things that the disciples will be ready is to help cases of urgent need. They're ready to be fruitful as those crisis moments arise. But for many of us, we, pace, we face a pace and a budget in life that don't give much in the way of margin. We live life to the absolute max. And that has been the commercial message for the last 30 years, at least. And when we live that way, we are not stewarding our lives as disciples. Jesus in John 10.10 says that he's come to give life and life to the full. That does not mean every hour of the day is jam-packed. It means that he's come so that you can have life and you can live it with everything that God has for you. What would it look like for us to choose to live differently? What are the things that can go? How can you budget your time, energy, and money in a way that makes more room for a generous response? If you're to look at the field of your life, how do you make it so that you don't harvest to the very edges? This is far more than just a financial conversation. It absolutely involves finances. But how can you make sure you're not harvesting to the very edges with your giftedness, your time, your abilities, and your money? The Christian life is one of intentional margin so that we can respond with a generous heart. Okay. 
I'm not sure with you guys, but one of the things that's become increasingly clear to me with the church in the West and sometimes in our lives is that there are too many inconsistencies between our stated values, the things we want to be known for, the things we care about the most, the things that we want to be characteristically true of us, and the disciplines or rhythms of life. There are too many inconsistencies between our stated values, the things we want to be known for, care most about, or want to be characteristically true of us, and the disciplines or rhythms of life. And when this happens, we become accidental hypocrites. And honestly, when this happens, our soul begins to get uneasy. And slowly rips us apart when our daily practices begin to get further and further removed from our core ideals or values or beliefs in life. And this cognitive dissonance creates accidental hypocrisy. So the invitation is to leave, live what we believe. Genuinely, take time this week to talk with your spouse, your friends, your community group. What do you value in life? If you value margin and generosity, what is your practice that's attached to that? If we are not to become accidental hypocrites, we must attach actions to our values or else we'll become like the foolish man who hears the words but does not build his house upon the rock. And when the waves come and when the storm comes, the house will come crashing down. Rather, we want to be like the wise man at the end of the Sermon on the Mount who hears the words and puts them into action. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And the whole law is summed up in these two commands. May these words sink deep into our hearts. Would we take steps of obedience in beginning to love our neighbors? If you're here this morning and you have no desire to love your neighbor, there's something missing between you and Jesus. And I don't say that to be mean, it's to identify. If there's no desire, if there's no want in you to love your neighbor, there's something missing. Because God does not give a selfish love. He gives a selfless love. One that's made for you to enjoy and to pass on. And today, if you're here and you're like, I just, I feel like I don't want to love my neighbor. I'm too tired. I'm too whatever. Man, I just, I hope and pray that the Lord blesses you this morning and lets you know that you're his son, you're his daughter, and he loves you immensely. That you would taste and see that the Lord is good. We're all celebrating generosity on October 14th altogether, but that doesn't mean you can't practice local generosity, loving your neighbor, starting now. How do you start? Please don't be like me and John Marshall who talked about discipleship for years before we started. How do you start? How do you love your neighbor? First, you got to know who they are. Who is your neighbor? Who are your neighbors? If we want to get uber practical, take the four doors that are closest to where you live. Know their names. Take it a step further. Invite somebody over to your house for dinner. I have to admit, I've been in our home in Camarillo for 10 years. We have not had our neighbor over in our house for a meal. Thankfully, I know Sue and John and Jody and Mike and Dave and 
Kim and uh, Valerie and Amelia and then my two neighbors to my right who speak only Spanish and my son knows their names better than I do. But wherever you're at, you might be good at getting to know somebody's name, but you aren't bringing them into your home. We, what does it look like to us to press into this story of loving our neighbors? I want to take this, ch- this challenge in the next two months. Invite one of your neighbors that you've never had over, over for a meal. Loving your neighbor involves money. It involves time. It involves relational commitment. But how do you keep on loving your neighbors? If we're to keep on loving our neighbors, we must create margin in our life. And worship team, you guys can come on up. We don't want to make an event out of loving our neighbors. We want this to become the status quo of who we are as followers of Jesus. When Jesus invites Israel to be a people who practice the discipline of margin, when he invites them to make sure that gleaning is always available, he didn't say do it once. This was their permanent posture so that they could regularly be a signpost, a marker of the generosity of God. You guys, this world has just destroyed margin in our lives. And by default, it will eat up all of your time and all of your schedule. This world's like, you got extra time? I'll take it. And we're like, here, have it. What does it look like to be a people who fight for margin? If you're married and have a family, take some time this week. What does it look like to intentionally leave extra on the side, emotionally, financially, spiritually, so that you can invite people in, so that you can take Jesus' command to love your neighbor seriously? If you're in a community group, if you're single, whoever your friends are, have a conversation regarding that. Because if we do not plan for margin, it's not going to happen. And you cannot create margin without saying no to things. This one might be a little bit odd. Some of you have too many Christian friendships. And there's no space for people who don't know Jesus in your life. I love that we get to have awesome Christian friendships, but guess what? We get to spend eternity with our Christian friends. There's some relationships in your life that you actually might need to start saying no to. And those are good relationships and it's going to be hard. But the reason you're doing it is because you want to create margins so that you can say yes to Fred, to Sue, to Abel, to Marjorie. And we need to create margin. And guess what? As you do, people are going to start seeing Jesus. Because you're going to start loving them like Jesus has called us to do it.